0: Let's pray as we uh, prepare to look into the word together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you do see what's in us. You see our hearts completely, fully. You know everything about us, Lord, our weakness and our sin and our the mess that we are, and yet you died for us. You called us to be yours. For that we praise you. We thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. May you use it, Lord, in our lives to teach us about you, to draw us close to your throne of grace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was pastoring in northern Idaho, I got a call one day from someone who said, A lady needs some help cleaning up her house. She's been in the hospital for several weeks, Could you come and maybe gather some of your college students and help clean the house? So we said, sure. Called a number of college students, a group of us went over there, and we looked at this house, and it really looked fine. As we walked up to it, it was a nice little house, and the outside seemed okay, everything seemed fine. So we thought, well, this is going to be easy, no problem at all. We opened the door, and the mess inside was indescribable. This woman, in trying to save money, had gone to different stores in town, and they'd given her their over, you know, their expired products, fresh products, canned products, all kinds of products, that she had been collecting for months and months and months. There were piles of grocery bags of things that were rotting that had been there for months and months. We filled garbage bag after garbage bag with what was in there. Two cats lived in there as well. The smell, as you can imagine, was horrible. Then I came up to the refrigerator and I thought, well, at least what's in there should be okay, or at least, you know, it shouldn't be in too bad a shape. Well, what she had done is she had also got, gotten overdue meat from the, uh, <laughs> from the stores. <laughs> and had put it in the refrigerator. And it was absolutely stocked full of all this meat, steaks and roasts and everything. The electricity had been turned off a month before. If you can imagine a refrigerator full of rancid, rotten meat. First thing I did after we were done was run home and take a shower, I'll tell you. (laughs) It was pretty awful. Things can look pretty good on the outside sometimes and be pretty rancid and awful and gross on the inside. And when we live a kind of Christianity that is outward and never really deals with the heart, Jesus tells us in our passage today that what happens is we become rancid, ugly, putrid on the inside. Religion, if it's misunderstood, if it's lived wrongly, can be very, very dangerous if it's lived looking at the outward and never dealing with the heart. And so in the passage today, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the experts of the law, the lawyers of their day about that very fact because he desired so much for them to have their hardened hearts softened so that they could come to a true knowledge of the Savior. This is the last discourse that Jesus gave in the book of Luke to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, his last parting shot to them to try to break through their hardness of heart. He has a couple of spats with them later on, but really this is the last discourse he gives them. And as we look, I think we'll gain a picture of what dangerous religion looks like. And hopefully God will penetrate our hearts as well through the power of his word. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. And we'll be beginning in verse 37. The two things that make religion dangerous are a wrong view of godliness and a wrong use of the word. A wrong view of godliness and a wrong use of the word. We'll see those today as Jesus confronts the Pharisees. Let me read verse 37 and 38 to set the context here. Now when he had spoken a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Jesus has been having dialogue with the Pharisees, having contact with them and and confronting them and, and all, and apparently this Pharisee hadn't been in on all that or something because he just saw a visiting rabbi he invites him to lunch, and we'll learn in this passage how not to have proper lunch etiquette. By the way, Jesus talks to his host here. <laughs> Jesus had a further purpose than just being a good uh, person at a lunch, invited to a luncheon here. It says that the Pharisee was surprised when he saw how Jesus responded. Let me explain how a rabbi was supposed to respond when he was invited to lunch. First of all, if you were a visiting rabbi, you always made sure you took the very most important seat. But before you sat down, you would wash your hands ceremonially. And again, it wasn't to get your hands clean. It was all part of the ritual that they had for a rabbi when he sat down to a meal. There were other rules. He could only eat with equals. So you can imagine how they felt when Jesus ate with sinners and uh, tax collectors. He couldn't break bread. Even that was written up as against the rules for a rabbi. He could only cut bread. Now, why? I'm not sure. But that was the rule. When he took a drink from a goblet, he had to turn his face away from everyone else at the table. He couldn't lick his fingers. I don't know what they did when they had fried chicken. but uh, <laughs> There were a number of rules, and I could go on and on, about all the rules that you were supposed to follow that weren't in the Scriptures at all, but this is what a rabbi was supposed to do when he was invited to lunch. Well, Jesus began with the very first one when you walk in and violated it right from the start. He didn't wash his hands. And the Pharisees wondering, what's going on? He was surprised, and Jesus could see the surprise on his face. Now you need to realize that the two great schools of the day of the Pharisees had written pages and pages and had hours and hours of discussion. The two parties of Shammai and Hillel had argued and argued about how you should wash your hands if you're a rabbi when you came to the table and what you should do with the towel after you dried your hands on it. And they would go on and on about these outward details, arguing and arguing about it. And notice what the Lord says to him. He sees the man's face. He sees that he's surprised that he hadn't washed. And the Lord said to him, verse 39, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? This is how you uh, make friends and influence people You, when you get invited to lunch. You Pharisees, you foolish ones, you clean the outside, but the inside is full of greed, robbery, and wickedness. You see, the Pharisees were acting upon a wrong view of what godliness is. To them, they define godliness, their view of godliness, was that godliness is keeping all the outside rules, all the traditions, making sure everything looks right. Everything outward is okay. Making sure that you're meticulous about every detail. So as you've heard, the law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So the Pharisees had over 600 rules about what that meant. And they had to follow every one. And if they ever caught you not following the rule, they'd let you know it. Because every rule had to be kept meticulously. But Jesus says that when you live that way, your inside becomes more and more ugly and corrupt. You see, you can't focus on both. If your life is focused on making sure everything outward is okay, if that's your view of godliness... The inside becomes more and more self-centered, more and more greedy, more and more grasping, and more and more full of evil and wickedness. That's what Jesus says. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 41. But give that which is within as charity, or as alms, as a gift to the poor. And then all things are clean for you. What is he saying here? It's a little bit easier in the parallel passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus says, You Pharisees, clean the outside, but inside you're full of greed and and wickedness. But first clean the inside, and then all will be clean. That's what he says in Matthew. But he says something very different here. He says, Give that which is within as a gift of charity, and everything will be clean. What in the world is he saying? He just said what's inside you is greed and wickedness, and now he's saying give that to others? That's what it sounds like. What is he saying? You see, Jesus' view of godliness, as we begin to look at it, is not just cleaning up the inside too. Here he's going beyond that to say that true godliness is giving from the heart. Having a heart that you give away. And he says, when you do that, all becomes clean. True godliness, a reflection of God's character, is giving from the heart. Looking at those who are needy and giving what you can to minister to them. With passion. With compassion with care, as you see the needs of others and you not just give outwardly, but you give your very heart to them, your time, your energy, and all that you are to minister to the needs of others. And Jesus says, when that is your focus, instead of keeping everything clean outwardly, then all becomes clean for you. The whole law is summed up, we're told, in loving your neighbor and loving God. Loving your neighbor. As you do that, you become clean. As that becomes the focus of your life, being other-centered, seeking to minister to others, rather than, I've got to clean up my act, I've got to make sure I do it all right. Then all becomes clean for you. Some of the events of the last few weeks caused me to decide that I want to make sure that God really deals with my heart. There were little attitudes, things in my heart that I was doing okay outwardly with, but inwardly I was letting live. So I decided, Lord, I began to pray, Lord, I want my heart to be pure before you. And as I entered that battle, I found it was a real battle for the heart. And I believe God wants us to do that, to say, Lord, I want my heart to be pure before you. But as I struggled with that and did that, which I think was a good process I found that just, not just focusing on the outward, but focusing on the inside, while it's a good thing, that's not the end of what Jesus calls us to do, to be godly. Because ultimately, if you're focusing on cleaning up yourself, you just become more self-centered, more inward-focused. And I began to see that what he was calling me to do was Trust him for my heart. As Jesus put it, he who seeks to save his soul will lose it. But he who loses his soul for my sake will save it. Began to see that he was calling me, yes, to get rid of the attitudes that were wrong and repent of those, but then step out and give my heart away to others. Because that's what true godliness is. That's what it looks like. Our flesh, our nature, resists dealing with the heart. Our flesh wants us to only focus on the outside and just clean up the outside, but not deal with what's really inside. Thomas A. Kempis wrote in The Imitation of Christ in around 1400 A.D. Truly, when our inward affection is corrupt... It must needs be that our deeds which follow are also corrupt, for from a clean heart spring the fruit of a good life. It is often asked what deeds such a man has done, but there is little regard for the zeal and intention with which he did them. Whether a man is rich, strong, fair, able, a good writer, a good singer, or a good laborer is often asked, but how poor he is in spirit, how patient and humble How devout and how inwardly turned to God are little regarded. Nature beholds the outward deed, but grace turns itself to the inward intention of the deed. So as a result, we focus on our quiet times and church attendance, and we feel good about ourselves if we've done all the right outward things that a Christian ought to do, and all of us fall into that. Every believer, because that's the natural bent of our flesh to do that. But ultimately it is selfish when we become rule keepers, seeking to keep the rules out there. And true godliness is giving my heart, my soul, away for others. I counseled a couple one time, I came in for marital, marital counseling, and the woman said, my husband just will not love me. I've asked him. He knows my needs. And he won't reach out and love me. He won't give himself to me. He won't meet my needs. And I began to ask about the relationship. Asked what it was like. And I began to discover that she had her own separate checking account. She kept all her money separate. She had her own job. She had Her own group of friends that she wouldn't let him get involved with. She had a number of male friends that he didn't feel comfortable about, that she would hang out with, spend a lot of time with, that she would not give up for the sake of the relationship, even though he expressed his concern about such a relationship. And on and on, I began to see that she was demanding that he love her, but she was unwilling to give her life to him and, and become one with him and engage with him. She wanted Him to be there and serve her and meet all her needs, but she was not willing to give her life away and give her heart to Him. And as I confronted her about that, she said, I couldn't do that. I don't know if I can trust Him. I know marriage is hard, but there is no love lest we give our hearts away and trust God to take care of our souls. And the result was... Within a few years, they were divorced. Christian couple. But she wouldn't give her heart to him. So Jesus goes on now to give three woes to the Pharisees first, and then three woes to the experts of the law. And in the first one, verse 42, he gives us the behavior of the Pharisees as they live this way, outward versus inward. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. There were three main distinctions of of the Pharisees in those days. One was they tithed everything. Everything they had, they tithed. Secondly, They followed all the rules of purification. They made sure they were always clean, according to their rules and regulations. And thirdly, they avoided any close contact with non-Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separatist. They were separatists. They were resisting getting involved with others because they wanted to make sure no one made them unclean. They were consumed with their own cleanliness. They were consumed with what a man does not with what a man is. And so Jesus moves in to confront that with this woe about how they tithe mint and rue. These little garden herbs, they would take a plant of mint and they would count off nine leaves and every tenth one they would give to the Lord. They would tithe that. The rue they would divide up, which is uh, some little garden herb as well. They would divide that up into nine parts and then a tenth part. They would tithe everything. And Jesus says, you tithe everything, you do all that, but you miss what God is really asking of you. You do the outward things, but you miss what God is calling you to do from the heart. Justice and the love of God. Justice is looking at those who are needy and seeking to meet their needs, using your heart and what you have To meet their needs. He says, this is what you should have focused on. First and foremost, tithing is okay. But that's not the point. The point is, love others, justice, and love God. That's what I'm calling you to. In the parallel passage in Matthew 23, Jesus puts it this way. You strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Who says Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor? (laughs) Just picture that, somebody swallowing a camel, trying to uh, digest that. Jesus says, no, love God and love others. Care for the poor and the needy from the heart. Give your heart away. Give your heart away for the sake of others. That's what I'm calling you to. Dan Reeves who was formerly the coach of the Denver Broncos, said one time, I can always tell the character of a person by the way he treats those who can do nothing for him. I can always tell the character of a person by the way he treats those who can do nothing for him. The poor, the needy, those who need justice. You see, if we're consumed with the outward, we won't really care for those who can't benefit us somehow. They might make us unclean somehow. But when we see godliness as giving your life away, then we'll engage with people who have needs, and our heart will be drawn by the love of God in us to reach out and love others who are needy, to care for them. Then the second woe to the Pharisees in verse 43. Jesus confronts their motivation as they focus on the outward. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees would parade in all their robes and they would uh they would make sure everyone knew they were they were coming. If they were going to give alms, they would have someone blow a trumpet so everyone would know that they're giving, and they would pour it out bit by bit so it would tinkle down in this horn that would go down into the container. They did everything either in the religious sphere, Jesus says, in the synagogue, and in the public sphere, outside of the religious sphere, so that people would be impressed by who they were. So that people would say, wow, aren't you wonderful? Aren't you godly? Jesus' point is, when we live focusing on the outward, making sure everything outward is okay, then we become controlled by the tyrant of demanding respect. People have to look up to me. They have to know I'm okay. And it begins to drive you and control all you do. And you begin to see that it consumes you. Your inner life becomes more and more hollow as you live that way. Recently as I was ministering to a needy family in our body and Several pastors were involved and it was a time of really reaching out and God really drew my heart to minister to them and some good things happened and a lot of us were involved. As I began to hear comments about the ministry that was going on, I noticed right away my name was never mentioned in all this good ministry. I found myself getting resentful. Look at all I'm doing. How come nobody's impressed? You know, I wanted to blow my own trumpet so people would know. Then the Spirit began to speak to my heart. (laughs) Say, that is so ugly. That is so putrid. You're not doing it for their sake. You're doing it for your own, to gain status and respect. That's ugly. You see, when we focus on the outward and we're controlled by status, then what becomes inside, though we might be doing what appears to be very good on the outside, becomes very ugly on the inside. George MacDonald said this, A man may sink by such slow degrees, that long after he is a devil, he may go on being a good churchman or a good dissenter and thinking himself a good Christian. A man may sink by such slow degrees that long after he's a devil, he may go on being a good churchman or a good dissenter and thinking himself a good Christian. We're so self-deceived. And if we don't look at our hearts, begin to see the selfishness that's there that drives us, but we just try to stay focused on the outside so we'll feel okay about ourselves. Then we become, again, uglier and uglier. And the result, Jesus says in verse 44 in his third woe, Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. In Numbers chapter 19... God gave the commandment to the Israelites and said, If you touch a dead body or a grave, you are unclean for seven days. It was one of the purification rites. So the Pharisees, of course, being concerned about purification and cleanliness, were very careful to make sure they never touched a dead body or a grave. And they would go out regularly and whitewash all the tombs. To make sure that everyone could see them so you didn't make a mistake and accidentally walk on one and become unclean. That's the background to what Jesus says here where he says, You are like concealed tombs that nobody can see. And people walk right over you and become defiled and they aren't even aware of it. You see, the impact we have on other people when we live only outwardly but inside we're full of hypocrisy and seeking selfish status for ourselves. And we don't deal with the heart, and we don't seek to love people from the heart. He says, you don't look dead, but you are. And you lead others toward a dead religion rather than a living faith. You produce death in others. Again, George MacDonald puts it this way. Nothing is so deadening to the divine as a habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. Nothing kills the life of God as much as just dealing with the outsides of holy things, doing the right outward things, but never letting it penetrate the heart and change you and make you new and truly convict you and break you and make you what God wants you to be. True godliness is not doing the right outward things. Those are not wrong. We should do the outward things, but our focus should be on our hearts before God, being broken, seeing our need, letting Him penetrate our intentions and our thoughts, and then seeking from the heart to share His love with others, to give to care, to give our hearts away knowing that He will take care of us. I'll never forget when I was a brand new believer, only a few weeks in Christ, when I saw a play. don't remember the name of it. I don't remember that much about it except two characters in the play. This rather wealthy woman and her servant, who was meek and timid And this wealthy woman had given away, she was so generous, she'd given all kinds of money to the church and to different charities. Well, they both died, and they ended up at the gates to heaven, with one door to heaven and one to hell. And as they were waiting, they were discussing various things, and finally their turn came, and the angel that was there called out to the wealthy woman that she was to go through the door to hell. And the other woman said, how could this be? You're so generous and you're so wonderful and you do all these wonderful things. And she said, I never did it out of love. I did it for myself so I would look good. You're the one who is the true servant. You're the one who gave your heart away. And the angel said, come, blessed, loved of my father. And the servant went through the door to heaven described this way in the book of Colossians, what we're called to. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 say, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart, not an outward appearance, but a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another, that means putting up with each other, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let me just give a reminder to you mothers out there. In the busyness of life, as you're dealing with your children, it's so hard Because it's so easy to just get consumed with doing all the right outward things and making sure your children conform to the right outward things. But let me remind you that you have an opportunity to model for your children and to teach your children by how you respond to them that what's important is giving, loving from the heart. Not just conforming outwardly, but deal with the heart of your kids, moms. Well, Jesus goes on now to say the second real danger of religion is not just a wrong view of godliness, that it's outward instead of internal loving others. But the second danger of religion is that you'd have a wrong view or a wrong use of the word, of the Bible itself, of the scriptures. And the wrong view is that somehow the word is really an instruction booklet that tells us what to do. It gives us the rules we need to keep. Now, i got to tell you, I love rules. (laughs) I love structure. I just want to be told what to do. I know some of you struggle with that, but I think there's part of us, because of our flesh, that we all want that. We want the rules. We uh, got a desk for my daughter. And as I was putting that together, I put almost all of it together, and then took a break before we finished it, and... I just had to finish one little part, and I probably could have figured out how to do it. But no, I needed that instruction booklet. I needed to find it, and I couldn't find it. So I got the house helping me look for this instruction booklet, because I wanted the rules to follow. And parts of every one of us in our flesh, we want the rules to follow, so we can begin to look at the Word that way. So in verse 45, now apparently at this luncheon there were Pharisees, several Pharisees, and several lawyers, experts in the law. Notice what one of them says in verse 45. Now I think this was probably not a very intelligent lawyer, because notice what he says. One of the lawyers said to Jesus in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Jesus says, thank you, I have some words for you as well. Let me tell you what they are. Let me tell you what the experts of the law were in their day. They're not the lawyers quite like our day who deal with the whole gamut of governmental law and uh, and seek to, to study that and understand that. They were the ones who studied the Old Testament. They were the scribes. They were the experts in Old Testament law. And they would spend hours and hours dialoguing, discussing, trying to figure out what each law meant and then making up all kinds of traditions and rules so people would know exactly how to live out every detail of the law. They saw the law as rules to keep, and they were the guardians of that. So if you weren't sure how to live out one of the Old Testament laws, you had to go to them, and they would tell you exactly what you had to do. Like the law that says no, you can do no work on the Sabbath the lawyers would talk and talk and talk and get paid to try to figure out what that means. So they came up with rules like, you can't carry a burden on your back because that constitutes work. But you can carry a burden in your teeth because that is not work. Now how they understood that, I'm not sure. But they had rule after rule after rule so that they could point to everyone else and say, you're doing it wrong, you broke this rule, you're You're violating the commandment. But they could do whatever they wanted because they knew all the exceptions and they could live as they wanted to. So Jesus says in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You see, what they did in their behavior is they added traditions to the word. And they gave all kinds of detail. They made the Bible essentially a book of secrets and riddles that only they could decipher. The people had to come to them to figure out what to do, how to live. The Mishnah, which was a commentary and of all their discussions, said, It is more important to observe the scribal interpretations of the law than to observe the law itself because it gave all the explanation. No one can understand the law, but you do what we tell you, and you'll be fine. And Jesus said all that was was heaping burdens on others when you wouldn't even raise a finger to carry them out yourself or to help anyone else with their burden. And the church throughout history, unfortunately, has over and over again used the word in this way to just pour on people's backs what you have to do. These are the rules you have to keep. And in every church, there may be unspoken rules, but there's still a sense of this is what makes a good Christian. You do these certain things. And they become rules that if they're taught and pushed and pressured, then we become like the scribes that say, you need to do this to be a good Christian. You need to follow these rules. Should we obey the word? Absolutely. But when we keep adding to it, adding more and more rules to it, and put pressure on people and see the word as a rule book, and that's all it is, then we do damage to people's lives. So the second woe, Jesus says this, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation." What is he talking about? What does he start talking about? Prophets and their tombs? Well, see, the scribes were working hard to build tombs for all the different prophets. And in their mind, they were honoring these prophets. And Jesus says, you're not honoring the prophets. You're focusing on their death. You are the teachers of the law. You should have been honoring their words. And their words point to me, Jesus is trying to emphasize. He says, they teach about the Messiah. And yet all you can do is honor their death by building tombs. And therefore you misuse the word, you misuse your authority to drive people away from Christ, to kill the word rather than bring it to life. He describes the the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. In the Hebrew Bible, the first book, of course, is Genesis, but the last book is Second Chronicles, in the Hebrew order of the Bible. And Jesus begins with Genesis, the first murder, and he ends with the last murder, and he says, everything in between, all of that is falling on your heads, because you should be the ones, when the Messiah is walking among you, in all of history, when you should have seen the word of the prophets that describe me, and saying, yes, he's here, here he is, believe in him. Rather than doing that, you're off building the tombs of the prophets so no one can see that I'm really here. You're to be the teachers of the law, and you're misusing the word, and you're killing it. The word says all kinds of things, like Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Don't focus on the outward but walk humbly with God from the heart. And all the prophecies in the prophets about Messiah coming, the experts in the law did not see, because they misused the Word. You see, the Word is meant to penetrate our very hearts, to reveal Christ, so that we can know Him. Are there rules? Yes. But the focus of the Word throughout is to reveal Jesus. It's a living word that teaches us to know Him, that helps us understand who He is and His love for us, so that we'll want to obey Him out of that love. But it's not a rule book that we have to follow every little detail that we can find so we'll be okay before God. And that's how they misused it. It's like getting a Christmas present and reveling in what's outside the ribbon and the paper and the box and ignoring the true present inside that's what the experts of the law did they looked at every detail and they missed the Christ who was there having lunch with them that day do we miss the Christ who is with us because we read the word and we see it as a rule book to follow instead of worshiping Him who is revealed in it. And the impact of living that way in verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key to knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in, you hindered. We drive people away, we lock the door to really understanding Christ when we live as though the Bible is just a rule book. To follow. How many non-Christians say, yeah, I tried that church thing, but I couldn't keep all the rules. I just couldn't pull it off. I couldn't do all that that those guys do. Because that's somehow what we've communicated to them is true Christianity. The result in verse 53, when he left there, probably had some indigestion, I would guess, <laughs> after lunch. The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question Him closely on many subjects, plotting against Him to catch Him in something He might say. The words there really describe ambush. They were doing whatever they could to ambush Him. Now, they were mad. I don't blame them. He took dynamite and blew apart their whole system for living life. He wants to do the same to you. When you live life as though... I have to keep all the outward rules, and that's my focus? No, true godliness is giving from the heart, giving your life away. Peter wrote in First Peter, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, dealt with the inner man your heart. For a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's true godliness. Getting your heart right before God and fervently loving others from the heart. Letting the word penetrate you so you can cleanse the inner man and then giving your heart away. Imitation of Christ. Just close with these words. Thomas Akempis again in 1400 describes the words as though the Savior was saying these to you and to me. I am the lover of all purity and the generous giver of all holiness. I seek a pure heart, and there is my resting place. Make ready for me a great chamber strewn with rushes. That is your heart. And with my disciples I shall keep my Easter with you. If you desire that I should come to you and dwell with you, free yourself of the old filth of sin and cleanse also the habitation of your heart. Exclude the world in all the clamorous noise of sin and sit solitary as a sparrow on the eaves of a house and think upon your own offenses with great bitterness of heart. For a true lover will prepare for his beloved the best and fairest place he can. For that is a sign of the love and affection of him who receives his friends. I am he who has called you. I have commanded this thing to be done. I will supply whatever is wanting in you. And then as we give our hearts away, all things become clean, Jesus says. Let's pray. Lord, how deceived we can be. How easily we focus on the outward and inside. We're corrupt, selfish, self-centered, seeking our own status. Lord, we confess before you today we need you to cleanse us. We want to make a home for you that is a habitual place for you to come, a beautiful, clean place where you can reside. Help us become lovers of others from the heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.